gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. Up front, I want to remind you that you can follow me on Twitter at The Walk Show Pod, Instagram and Facebook at The Walk Show, and also if you could just take a moment to like, rate, subscribe, star, thumbs up, whatever it is that your app lets you do uh, with relation to this podcast, it just helps it be more discoverable, uh, the more of those little little things that it gets. Um also, I want to bring up my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a gaming podcast. It's co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley, who's been on The Walk Show several times. Um, we've kind of moved away from, from doing gaming content on The Walk Show, uh, as Pick Up Your Sticks is now the, the, the best outlet for that. So if you're interested in, in gaming discussions at all, then I highly suggest that you go over and check out Pick Up Your Sticks. It's available everywhere, just like The Walk Show is. Uh, if gaming's not your thing, then hey, stay right here with the walk show, because uh, like I said, not a not a lot of content centered around gaming will will be here. Um, all that being said, uh, today's show we have a special guest, Tavish Lawson. Tavish is actually a local here in Springfield, Missouri, musician that uh, teaches music to several students and also plays live shows. Uh, Tavish was a really interesting character to me because he he's in his twenties and and just recently decided to, to stop working his, his day job, if you will, uh, to really pursue music full-time. Uh, and I thought that that was a really bold and, and brave step, and, and I was really excited for him to, to kind of take that step and, and really wanted to get him on to, to talk about it. Uh, the conversation that we have is somewhat freewheeling. We do not stay just on music. We talk about movies, games. Uh, there's a, a little bit of politics in there. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a fun conversation, and I think one that, that you'll really enjoy listening to. Uh, as always, today's music is provided by Misha Zarin, so thank you for that, Misha. And yeah, without further ado, let's jump over to the conversation with Tavish. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Uh, this afternoon, we're joined by Tavish Lawson. Tavish, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, so we were actually introduced, I don't know, a month and a half ago or something by a mutual friend who, knowing her probably, would prefer to remain unnamed. Uh, <laughs> if she listens, she'll appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, <clears throat> and uh, and yeah, and so you were telling me that you... Uh, are a musician in a variety of ways. Yes, correct. Um, so yeah, so I guess we'll start with uh, you. You teach music at a. a I do. Place here? Yeah, yeah, in Springfield here, Springfield, Missouri. I teach at a music store called Springfield Music. Mm. Uh, it was established in the seventies, um, and I teach four instruments. Currently, to this date, I have 36 clients on four different instruments. Oh, wow. Those instruments are guitar, bass, drums, and the ukulele. Oh, okay. I also offer mandolin, but I don't have any clients taking that currently. Sure. Um, when it comes to myself and the time I've invested in instruments, I have about 18 years in both the guitar and drums. Oh, wow. So uh, I'm 28 now. You know, so that's well over half my life that I've invested into sure. this, uh, that endeavor, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and the other instruments, you know, if you talk to a polyglot, 
somebody who speaks multiple languages, ah. four, four or five languages. Didn't know that word, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're teaching me here too. So, <laughs> so if you talk with a polyglot, they will express something that I find very true in music and learning new instruments, that there are similarities more often than there are differences in instruments. Mm. So in the Western world, we use a certain type of music theory that uses just 12 tones, and those 12 tones repeat through the, what we call, octaves. And so, um, being able to uh, express yourself on multiple instruments doesn't necessarily mean you're using different theory. It mm. all uses the same theory. Okay. And so with polyglots, they learn over time that with language, it all has kind of this root presence. Mm -hmm. And then all these languages kind of form out of that. Mm -hmm. um, music is very much a language. And so learning how to speak on the bass is slightly different than learning how to speak on the mandolin. But it's using the same phonetics. Right. It's just a different register that you're in. Right. And so being able to learn several instruments, and I express this to students frequently, that if you learn one instrument, you can take those concepts and apply them elsewhere mm -hmm. in other instruments. And, and I am very much a people encourager. I try to be at least. And so I want people to delve into other areas, things that they're unfamiliar with. Maybe you've played the guitar for a year and a half, and you kind of want to sit down at a piano once. Right. You know, just the, the things that I will show you, you can then apply that in very sensible ways and still make decent tones or have a general understanding of the approach. Mm. Um, we were talking before the podcast started about my teaching, and I have a very broad range of uh, age group. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very broad range of musical taste that way, you know. Uh, one of my four-year-olds may want to learn uh, like a Blues Clues tune. Right. right. Is that <laughs> then, show still on? And then I have, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knows it, though. <laughs> uh, and then I have, you know, uh, my oldest student is currently 84. Oh, wow. Her name is Ann Fellows. She plays the guitar and the bass. And... Uh, and then from there, I have a, like a 70-year-old and then a couple 50-year-olds, and it kind of just descends in age, you know, from there, sure. you know. But it's interesting moving from person to person because right. everyone's mental state is different. Everyone's day is different. So they come in week to week even different. And so what I find the most difficult about being an instructor is my consistency. Mm. Because they learn me as an individual week by week. Right. And I have to uphold certain characteristics of that, you know. Had you ever taught anything before you did the, the music yes. teaching? Uh, so I grew up an hour east of here, mm -hmm. a town called Mountain Grove. Mm -hmm. And I have a cousin back home that owned a music store. Uh, and whenever I was about 18, 19, I was freshly out of high school taking... Uh, uh, online courses with Berkeley College of Music, uh, he's, he said that he wanted to get some influx of people into his store, and he thought teaching would be a good way to do that. Mm. So I got up to about 14 students then. You oh, know, okay. this is almost a decade ago, and this town is less than 5,000 people. Right, right. right. So, so the, uh, <laughs> the, the, that was impressive to me, mm -hmm. that, I, that I got 14 of those. You probably got everyone that wanted to play an instrument. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I will tell you this much as well. Uh, 
people that I have two two statements. Okay, so the okay. first is that people who pay to do something mm-hmm. typically will do it more intently than people who just like go online to try to learn it. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, so there's a level of discipline that comes with showing up every week. Because mm-hmm. I ask everyone every time. All of them walk through the door. I say, well, what have you worked on this week? Right. And I like to open with that, and then we can discuss their concept or how to build upon what they are learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the difference between 14 students and 36 students is tremendous. <laughs> you know, right. it's well over double, but that's not what makes it interesting. It's that I was talking with a friend a little while back about listening to music mm-hmm. you know i was in columbia for my birthday was two weeks ago and uh so i went up to columbia to hang out with some lifelong friends and we were talking about the music we've been listening to and i said honestly i don't actively seek music out right now hmm. i'm in a situation where with 36 people that's a lot of music to listen to already <laughs> they bring me they well they bring me lists of songs that they want to learn <laughs> right so right. then i have to go in and listen to these songs and figure out the best path for their skill set to be able to acquire these songs. Well, it's interesting. I, I just interviewed uh, another guy for, for the show recently who plays uh, trumpet. And he, at this point, he has been in different bands before, but at this point he's kind of a like a freelancer where someone will be yeah. like, hey, can you come play with us sure. and you know join us for this show or for, for whatever? But so because of that, he, he was the reason I bring it up is that he was also explaining that he doesn't really seek music just for him, like the gist of his own choosing necessarily, because he's constantly having to learn whatever band he's going to go play with. Absolutely. So he's he's constantly kind of having, and he has like, a, he does have a, a, a duo that he does with his daughter. So then he has to like get in, into that. But so he's constantly spending his time trying to get his head in the frame of whatever performance he needs to do. Yes. And it just doesn't really lend itself to him to be able to just recreationally, I guess you could say, listen to music. Well, and to add to that, in our Western world of music, we have genres, selective styles of music. Mm-hmm. So if you're, a, if you're a freelance artist who's bouncing around from like a funk group to a jazz group to, a, right. to a, like a, a more pop rock sound, um, Bruno Mars or something along those lines, mm-hmm. uh, your inflection changes, right? You travel to different parts of the United States, people speak differently. Right. Music is no different. The genres speak the same language, but in different inflections. Mm. And so being able to bounce around like that is a valuable trait. Sure. You know, just being able to jump in and have a Brooklyn accent or have a New Orleans accent. Right. You know, have being able to slang your style of play to fit what is actually right. happening. Right. You know? Hmm. Um, I've never, I never really thought of that. So you're comparing almost like, like regional dialects to genres of music. Yes. In that you're ultimately communicating similar ideas, but it just sounds different. Of course. Hmm. You know, really like... Uh, point. I never considered that. North Carolina bluegrass or folk speaks much differently than surf rock California. Right. Using the same principles, right? Or, or screamo 
sounds very different than the blues, of but they most both might be about getting broke up with or something. Of course, right? Yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And the aggression in the music is what sends that home, right? You know, Stevie Ray Vaughan can play something super metal, right? In his blues lick, like right. it's just raw and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, vicious. But you don't consider that metal, right? Because Stevie Ray Vaughan is a blues musician, right? So he's applying principles of that aggressive style of metal, but in a way that is formatted to his sound, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, yeah, with the languages and everything, um, it's being an audio person that I am, my ears are just super hot. I hear very minute details of things. And so accents, that's probably why I make the correlation. correlation Mm -hmm. between um, language and music and Mm -hmm. the dialect that we're speaking of Mm -hmm. because you hear these little nuances. Mm -hmm. The difference in Chicago jazz and New Orleans jazz is tremendous. Right. You know, uh, because of this, A, the selection of instruments to begin with, and then B, just the the approach uh, because it's really hot down in Louisiana and it's really cold and windy up in Chicago. Right. So they, they... they live that, right. and that comes across through their art, hmm. you know? That's really interesting. So, whenever you started, I mean, you started around when you were 10 years old, I guess, based yeah, on the... Yeah, I did, I did I some mean, I had some. I had some <laughs> dabbling before that. You know, okay. my mom had, like, a, a small Casio keyboard, okay, yeah. and it had a little screen on it that had the keys on it, and you could press play on a song, and it would show you how to play this song oh, wow. on these little keys. And this huh. is back in the mid-90s. And, sure. And so I spent a lot of my... Eight, nine, ten year old self uh, analyzing that screen and just kind of two finger chicken pecking these melody lines out, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, I remember the day that I thought music was the path for me. Uh, my parents and I had went to eat at Subway, and we walked in, and an Alan Jackson song was playing on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like eight or nine years old and hearing this song and it what grabbed me was the bass guitar mm. and how it was moving okay and everything made sense we call that now uh consonance okay. consonance is like harmonic balance dissonance is chaotic balance mm. so uh when when i heard this alan jackson song and i heard that bass just boom 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 uh walking all over the place i thought i have to figure out why this works or hmm. how this works. Hmm. And a decade later, I was talking with a, an advisor of Berkeley College of Music, and he said, what do you want out of this, this experience? And I, that was the exact phrasing I used. I want to know how it works. Mm-hmm. I want to know why music works the way that it does, mm-hmm. how these 12 tones create thousands of different genres, classifications of music. Right. Um, and yeah, he was for he was had enough foresight to realize that going to the physical school would not be as good of an investment as going online. Mm. And for that, I thank him. The difference in a hundred thousand dollars and twelve thousand dollars for virtually the same thing. Pretty significant. Pretty significant. Yeah. So, <laughs> Justin, I don't know if you're listening to this, but uh, thank you because yeah. a my my instructors were very kind and uh, intelligent with the way that they spoke about music. Mm -hmm. There's a concept in theory called modes and 
essentially you have an eight-tone scale and you can start in different areas and get texture. And I was in college and I was having a difficult time with this and I approached my professor and I said, you gotta help me understand. I, uh, this is tough. And the analogy he gave me was actually brilliant and it's something that I've carried over into my teaching and that's that your ears have a palate much like your tongue. Mm -hmm. So your tongue can identify different types of chocolate or cacao. Okay, it, it knows the difference between bitter and sweet. Mm -hmm. uh, these modes are no different. Your ears will learn the texture that it's giving. Mm. And then from there you learn to, how to apply it. And, and after that, I started considering that. Mm -hmm. And here we are eight, nine years later, and I have a full grasp of that concept. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually talking with a guy recently... Um, who was described, he grew up in Iowa and said that, you know, his family's cooking when he was growing up was kind of like, um, salt was, was too spicy, you know, so very bland <laughs> yes, kind sure. of food, right? Sure, sure. And, um, and so he, he ended up, um, in college meeting his eventual wife who is, uh, Chinese. And so compared to him, especially, her family and the food that she had was very, you know, exotic, you could say, compared to what he had. And so at first, he was kind of intimidated by it, but then he decided that he would, from, from you know, whatever day he decided this going forward, he would pick the most uh, bizarre to him, you know, not trying to insult it or anything, but whatever to him seemed like, the, the, the out of the ordinary yeah the most bizarre thing on the menu yeah. and that's what he was going to get and so he just started doing that and just kind of committed to it and now you know he's that's probably close to 20 years ago for him he he has this really really well developed palate mm -hmm. where he can he can really appreciate a really wide range of foods you know of course um, and so it just reminds me of that with what you're yes. talking about with the and, ears and yeah and I feel as though now, if we were to pull up some music and analyze it, I could tell you to which degree they're playing in, mm. without even having an instrument. Right. Just being able to hear the textures and the harmonic balance, yeah. and saying, oh, that's really tense, that must be Phrygian, or, you know, hmm. things to that degree. Huh, yeah, I so I listen to music constantly, like I, uh, at my day job, I I don't really do it now. Um, but I used to for a long time just wear earbuds constantly throughout yeah. the day. Audiophile. And uh, but I can't play anything. I can't. <laughs> I can't sing at all. Um, so I don't produce music in any way. Sure. But I. I. I'm a huge fan. Like I love it. Like. I, like I. I <laughs> this will be two podcasts in a row once this comes out where I've said this. But like as much of a big gamer as I am that I was just talking to you about before we started yeah. recording, if I had to go to the deserted island, like. I would want to take like an iPod or like a Spotify enabled device before I would take a computer or a of Xbox course. or something, you know, of because course. music is just so incredible to me. Um, but it, it's interesting because I, as much as I like it and as much time as I've spent listening to it, I don't actually have a sophisticated ear for it at all. Like, like I love Tool, for example, right? Sure. Well, Tool is a very popular band. A lot of people like Tool. Yeah, they people, beat out Taylor Swift for the number yeah, one album. Right, yeah. <laughs> talk about piss her off. Yeah. That was totally unexpected, too. But that, that tells me that there's a thirst 
for the out of the norm pop music. Yeah. There's 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 a hunger that is difference. Uh, we've been so conditioned to accept whatever's put on the radio. Mm-hmm. And then Tool comes out with this album that is just uh, technically and sonically complex. Right. And people, that's that's nice. That's that's right. engaging for people. Yeah, I mean, I'm Tool is far and away my favorite musical thing, act or whatever you want to call it. But um, but yeah, like I can listen to Tool, and I can't tell you what instruments are making what noises so it's really hard to talk about it with anyone (laughs) because it's like yeah you know the part where it's like and it's like you know whereas you would just be like oh man the bass is awesome right there like oh that guitar riff is crazy or oh listen to the drums and it's like it's not that i literally can't ever you know create a distinction but just just casually listening i'm not i'm not just like oh my god those drums awesome oh man that bass line super but you appreciate it on the whole and that is what that is what artists need right artists don't need people to necessarily dissect what they're doing sure but the appreciation of commitment being able to a tool's been a band for going on 30 years Mm -hmm. am i right Mm -hmm. yeah and so a to have that kind of commitment to one project Mm -hmm. is fascinating and respectful within itself Mm -hmm. and then that they've come out with several albums over that time and they all have different kinds of inflection mm-hmm. you know it's all tool you throw on any song from the raider 10 albums you know that it's tool mm-hmm. but it's still each you can identify each album mm-hmm. and that that to me is very uh admirable as well yeah i think and you know they've done very limited interviews over the years and they are are uh, it's interesting because the, the like the the way that they market themselves is that they don't really market themselves and sure. so then that creates its own marketing opportunity where people like me are like, oh, that's so cool. You don't sell out like Nickelback or whatever, you know? <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, but I, I and so I, I say this and to some extent I'm taking some liberties because it's not like, I don't know that they've said this ever in an interview, but like what I think I really appreciate about it is that I, it feels like they are making art for themselves. And then sure. that so happens to also be and not that, I mean, it has poppy elements, like Tool is on the radio, you know what I mean? Of it's course. not Dream Theater or something and like to, that. And to specify pop, when people think of that term, the first person that comes to mind is probably Michael Jackson, right? Sure, like, yeah. ultimately, Pop King, yeah, whatever. Right. Um, but pop does not necessarily mean new age or electronic music. No, I mean it like generally relatable is kind of what Popular. I mean. Popular. That's yeah. what that yeah, stems exactly. from. Right, right. So, you know, this thirst or hunger for difference like we were expressing earlier, that is popular right now. Or it was trending right. when that album dropped, you know? That, right. that hit in such a time that enough people were able to go, oh, this is so much different than what I've been right. listening to. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like eating cornflakes for five years and then switching to raisin bran. You right. know what I'm saying? It's like now, I, now I have <laughs> raisins in here. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a little different. Right. Right. Uh, any kind, any time you can cleanse the palate, uh, I think people enjoy that. That's why they give you ginger with sushi. You know? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know that for a long time, and people that I would be with would just eat the ginger. 
like with the sushi, like as if it was like a garnish. A topping. Yeah, no, that's not. And then you... someone explained that it's actually a palate cleanser, and so I tried it, and it's remarkable how well that works. Yes, if you have three or four different rolls, yeah, it is. So it's funny though because you know we're talking about music and, and the taste palette and how they're they're similar and so I always joke also like I love dry red wine right sure and I also have never met a sushi roll that I didn't like yeah yeah however I am not a connoisseur in the same way that I am with music I'm not a connoisseur of either like I I can drink cheap yellowtail red wine and I don't care if it's merlot or Cab, you know cabernet sauvignon or whatever like of course. All those different, like it doesn't, Shiraz, like whatever it is, but I'm you, always like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> you still have the insight, though. You're listing off these types, variations. Sure. So you I can still, read. So. <laughs> yeah, that helps. I guess that does It's help. taken me a long way, yeah. But still, there's a correlation there. But, you know, if you were, so you're saying that if you were blind tested on several different wines, you wouldn't be able to point out the... No, it's not... It's, I can't... I, I, I don't mean to say that. It's not that I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between one to the next, especially if they were, you know, consecutive. Yeah. Um, it's more that, like, like people who are really into wine can taste a wine and be like, oh, there's, like, oak in that, or, oh, I can taste uh -huh. the different... the grape type, or... Oh, like, they can they can really get into the nuance of it. Yes. And I just don't really get that out of it. You know what I mean? I'm just like, yeah, I like dry red wine. I know I don't really like sweet white wines. I don't really like mm -hmm. sweet dessert red wines. I um, have never yeah. delved into the world of wine. Um, I've had a couple types of wine, mm -hmm. but it has just never interested me the way that a good scotch or whiskey, mm. bourbon... Uh, yeah, there I have, I have no, I don't know if I could tell the difference, probably because they probably taste somewhat different, but I've never really drank uh, liquors in that way. I, if I have, it's always mixed, and so then it's like, sure. well, what's the point of getting a fancy one if you're just going to put Coke in it anyway? You with, know what I mean? With whiskey, like, that is a prime example, but with a good bottle of scotch, mm -hmm. the you you would never mix it. it right, would, right. It would be, it would be smoky. And have a bite to it. I tried, actually, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I had some friends that had gotten into scotch, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to go to the store, and I'll buy a bottle from the middle of the shelves. Because sure. the bottom shelf, like, at the grocery store, at least with liquors, it is actually that, like, the more expensive is the top and the cheaper is the bottom, yeah. and typically the quality actually does follow the price, at least to some extent. I mean, not, yes, not right. always. There are exceptions. Yeah. Right, but I'm pretty confident that, like, Evan Williams is always not as good as... Glenfiddich. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yes. And so I, I bought a... Excuse me. I bought a bottle of middle-of-the-road scotch, but I had no idea how I was supposed to consume it. And yeah, and I did try and mix it with... I don't know if it was soda or what, but it was horrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I ended up giving it away. <laughs> but then since then, I've had, I've had drinks at bars. I don't know if it's ever been scotch, but I've done like... Um, 
Cavassier. Okay, yeah. And, like, and just done a, a glass of that where you just, like, it's the tiniest sips. Like, it's like mm-hmm. my mouth almost doesn't even get wet from the tiny amount. Yes. And then that was enjoyable. And so I was like, ah, oh, I think this is how you're supposed to enjoy scotch. Absolutely. It's a sipper. Right, sure. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is actually a tremendously awesome distillery south of Springfield. Oh, okay. Uh, it's just north of Branson on 65, and it's called Copper Run. Copper oh, okay. Run Distillery. And they host live music there week- weekly. And uh, I've had the privilege of playing there a handful of times. And usually they'll comp artists a bottle of whatever they want. Oh, cool. You know, as you know, uh, like a flat rate and then have this bottle as well. Right. That's cool. And it is very cool. They've got some tremendous selection of Hmm. uh, liquor. Hmm. So if you're ever interested, do you know where the Bear Creek Winery is? Uh, No. Well, if you're a fan of wine, you yeah. should go check them out. Yeah. Too. Same kind of, like, same location. Mm-hmm. You could just Google Maps, Bear Creek Winery, and the distillery is just maybe an eighth of a mile away from mm. But, uh, I kind of want to shift gears here sure. with the, with the um, breweries, microbreweries. Mm. It's impressive to me. How many have popped up in the last five or six years? You think it's sustainable, though? The reason I say that is, like, several years ago, <laughs> and I, I ranted and raved about it whenever it was going on, there was there were all these cupcake stores that popped up all over Springfield. Like, I don't know how many there was, 10, 15? Yeah. Like there, was, like, there was one shopping center that I used to live close to that had two cupcake stores in the same shopping center. <laughs> and I was like... How is it possible that there's this level of demand for cupcake? Like, I get it. it, They're good. And, and it you know, if you want cake and don't want to buy a whole cake, it's a nice solution. Kind of like going to Andy's or Dairy Queen or something to get a cup of ice cream instead of a carton. Sure. Fine. But there's just no way. And, and, but they existed for a few years and now most of them are gone. Yeah. So business loans will take you a long way. My answer to that question is. I, there's, it's all supply and demand. Right. And right now the demand is very high, much like you were expressing with the cupcakes. You Mm -hmm. know, at some point, if we had a graph (laughs) that we could analyze the last 20 years of cupcake purchases. (laughs) Consumption, right. You know. uh, (laughs) So, do I think it's sustainable? I think the strongest will survive. Right. Uh, Groups in town specifically like Mothers. Yeah. uh, White River. Um... I think those will sustain. There are others where I think they just don't have the regional impact that right. groups like that have. You yeah. Know? You think about Boulevard from Kansas City. Yeah. You know, they they pitch their stuff all over. Are mm-hmm. they as big as Budweiser? No. Yeah, I went to Oregon. So Boulevard Wheat is a classic beer for me. And uh, I went to Oregon one time and sat down at a microbrewery <laughs> and asked if they had Boulevard, which is probably a sin to ask that. In a, but anyway, and they, they had never heard of it, and then it dawned on me like, oh, that's only really popular in Missouri yeah, because it's from Kansas City. Sure. <laughs> or yeah, yeah, maybe not Missouri, yeah, but yeah, yeah. that area. It's like when you go to Texas, get Newcastle. You mm. know what I'm saying? Or like, they're, yeah, every region has a like a good type of beer. Right. And I'm not a huge beer drinker, but I do like lagers over mm. anything. A gold, a nice golden lager, or anything as dark as Guinness. Yeah, I I really appreciate that. A coffee stout is fantastic too. Yeah, um, 
I you kind of lose me with the IPA, same the bitter bitterness, really hoppy stuff. Yeah, I'm no. not a huge fan. No, it's a chore to drink, Agreed. and I don't want to make the like something enjoyable a chore. Right <laughs> at the end of the day, you know. Right. Um. So yeah, in short, I think that while most of these breweries may be a flare. Mm-hmm. What they're doing to the music scene is great because oh, every right. one of these that have opened have been hosting live music. Right, because they're basically also a bar. Correct. Yeah, right. or just a pad. They just want to have a good place to hang. Sure, out, sure. You know, and so for the Springfield music scene, that's incredibly valuable. Right. You know, but even places like Papo's, yeah, has been doing live music. Yeah, I went there. Uh, I don't know a month or so ago uh, with my mom and my aunt who was visiting from out of town. And yeah, and there was a guy playing there, and he was yeah. very talented. And of course, it was uh, yeah. it was. It, it, I was surprised at. I expected it to be like, a guy kind of just in the background, and maybe you don't even really notice. But no, he was very prevalent. Attention oriented. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, but he was very talented. I was I was surprised. But yeah, that's just a pizza place for people who aren't local. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. But they have music every Friday. Because if you're local, you go to Big Slice, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry. I <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Big slices. Big slice is good stuff. It is. Um, but Papo's is also nice. It's also. I agree. There's some good pizza there. Yeah. And they they sell these chocolate chip cookies. Oh, to die oh, for. Oh, I've never had those. Yeah. They put salt on them. I'd never. Yeah. Had a salted cookie before, yeah, but yeah. delightful. Um, so there's something that's interesting about Springfield and their music scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> there are a lot of incredibly talented people in this city. I'd say well over a thousand musicians uh, right out of the gate. Now that's a sliding scale of um, how virtuistic you are. In the endeavor. And whether or not college is in session or not, probably. (laughs) That does have quite an effect. However, the general census of Springfield is probably right around 180,000, I'd say. And Mm -hmm. then with the advent of MSU and Drury, you know, I think MSU this year had close to seven or 8,000 freshmen come in. Right. So that's 8,000 more people in the city. I would say we're close to 200,000 people, yeah. you know? So for me to say, uh, yeah, 1,000 or 2,000 musicians, you know, that's 0.5% sure, of the population, sure. you know? Right. Um, however, what we come to find is oversaturation due to uh, traveling negligence. There's, there's a lot of people become comfortable gigging the same kind of circuit here close sure you know i'm at white river this week and then i'm at Papo's, and then i'm at hotel v you know mm-hmm. and people don't ever leave this place so what happens five weeks go by of you playing these same places and nobody stopped like everyone stops showing up right because they've already heard what you're doing if you're not continually changing and modifying your sound right people will lose interest or just playing the most popular covers exclusively <laughs> yeah man. yeah which i don't know an artist that wants to be a jukebox at the end of the day you yeah, know, there used to be some guy that played, I think at Bruca maybe, and and I'm not trying to be critical of him, I don't know the guy at all, or, or and sure. haven't been that much art something though. Bentley. There you go. Yeah. And he, but that's pretty much what he did was played covers yeah. almost exclusively. And he's been doing this for 20 years. Right. He's been traveling, but he travels. Oh, like okay. Like the Ozarks and uh, uh, Des Moines. Oh, okay. Like he goes out of Springfield and then he'll come back. And that 
brings people to him. Yeah, yeah. Because he's like, hey, I haven't played in Springfield in eight weeks. Right. So I'm going to be in town. So now it's actually an opportunity to catch the show as opposed to just every yeah. week. Yeah, oh, I'll catch it next week. Right. Because that's the mentality people get into. Right. And a lot of these artists that stay around here complain. They say, I can't get anyone to come to my shows. Hmm. Well, you're a one-trick pony. Right. Like, at the end of the day, you know. Right. You know well, that's... so, yeah. Well, so that's interesting that you... You bring this up because that was the other thing that you had shared with me whenever I I'd met you a, a while back was that in addition to teaching, you were going to give up your day job and just try and start doing gigs. And I have since. And yeah, and so how I, I think I'm, the, the day I met you was either you had just stopped your day job or were getting ready to the following week, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I have exclusively taught and played live music for going on two months now. How is that? It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's been a work in progress for the last three or four years to get everything in place, you yeah. know, and now that it is, I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity and I try hard not to squander uh, moments, but you find, and I think this is with most professions, if you own your business, that you don't have to take every opportunity, right? You don't have to. Yeah. A lot of people that are new to something think that they have to overload themselves in order to continue. Right. That is, pacing is so important. Right. And so, I, for the listeners, I used to work at uh, a supermarket called Lucky's. Mm-hmm. It's like a Whole Foods style place. Sure. Um, I left there, <laughs> funny, I was making just over $9 an hour working there, right? And they host live music on the weekends. Oh, really? Saturdays and Sundays. They've got a cafe. And if you're ever into wanting to grab some wine or something, you're out. (laughs) They do $3 glasses of wine. Okay. $2 pints. Yeah, they've got a lot of local brew. Um, so it's, it's nice to go hang out in the cafe. Everywhere's got a stage now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Even the yeah, grocery store. The whole store. world's a stage, that's right. <laughs> so get this, I was making just over $9 an hour working there. I had just hit 30 students, my mark. Mm-hmm. And I, I had already done the math prior and thought, I need 20 students in order to pay my bills. Okay. But that's not where, like, I needed money after that to, like... Live. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I waited till I got 10 more, 50% more than what I needed Yeah. to then say, okay, I can step away from Lucky's. Right. You know? Once I did, I got hooked up in the gigging over there, so mm-hmm. I play live music every Saturday. Hey, man. nice. They pay me 50 bucks an hour. <laughs> A little bit better deal. A little bit better deal. <laughs> it's on my own terms and for the most part. And you love it. Yes, of course. So Well, and the thing that I find that's interesting, people that hang out there, I've been getting better about being tipped, okay? Okay. Now, I've been in the live music scene for a decade, mm-hmm. but as a solo artist, I'm, I'm kind of new to it. Okay. I'm more exposed all the time. But like the last two or three years have been what I've really been, that's what I've been doing the most is just trying to live solo act. Sure. And here lately I've been making tips, which is like a, a newfound thing. And, and right. I kind of do that Art Bentley thing where I read my crowd and I play songs that are very selective to maybe an age range. Sure. You know, if I look out and I see 12 people and eight of them look like they're over 40, I'm going to bust out some uh, Eagles stuff right. and, and some, or maybe some 90s pop. 
Right. You know, things that I think these people would be into. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of a fanatic of psychology. I read into certain things. My my favorite form of psychology is sociology. Okay. I like the way groups interact. And uh, I'm usually a fly at a wall at a party. I like observing how everyone is engaging. Hmm. That's very interesting to me. And so I, I, I do these psychological evaluations on people when I perform. You know, and that may be being judged, folks. Maybe yes, exactly, exactly. But what I find happens the most is if I don't engage with the crowd, mm-hmm. I make no tips. Right. But the moment I even say, Hey, this table in the front, do you have a request? Right. Do you want to hear something? Right. Even if they don't have it, even if they're like, oh, no, we just keep you doing your thing. Just do your thing. Mm-hmm. They will tip me. Right. Because I engaged with yeah. them. I'd, and, and once I do, it's kind of like you're on two separate sides of a cloak, right? Or a veil, rather. Mm-hmm. Where the entertainer and the entertained yep. um, meet. And when you can slip through that cloak and yeah. kind of pull them into it a little harder, A, they listen to your next song a lot more intently Mm -hmm. and B they're more likely to show gratitude. Right. Whether that be in the form of a tip or an applause, right. You know, however it may be, if you engage with people, I think a lot of people have this perception of an entertainer as, um, secluded, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, don't talk to them. Like they're, they're of a different breed. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We, uh, we can't intermingle. But if you are very human with humans, then they're very receptive to a lot of things, you know. Yeah, well, I think people I think people like to um, participate isn't really the right word. I mean, it, it, it's kind of that. But they do want to feel included. Yeah, and well, and I think that like even like uh, it can even happen in like a movie, which certainly when you're in the theater, I mean, no one comes out of the screen and is like, hey, you in the front row, do you like that <laughs> scene? I mean, that doesn't happen. That's true. <laughs> but I think if a movie is engaging enough, people feel like they're in it, which is where you get people that shout things at the screen or, of course. or you know, have these really dramatic reactions. Or 3D movies. Right. Now they're getting into um, VR movies. Yeah. Where the action's happening here, but you can watch the birds to your right if you want to. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right. th- we're getting into this very interesting time where we're able to step out of our genuine reality. I used to do stand-up comedy, and um, the the most popular acts that ever came to town. Now, I mean, I never opened for like a you know a, a, a name that people. Yeah, not like yeah. a Dave Chappelle or you know nothing like that ever. How long ago was this? You did that? Uh, I did it when I was twenty, and then I did it again when I was like thirty. Yeah. So 
five years ago, I guess now is the last did time I did it. Did you just say all you needed to say and that was it? Or why'd you, what's um, the breaks about? I don't know. It Well, so when I was 20 and I was doing it, I was hosting a show at the, uh, the there used to be a place here called Sir Gregory's. And they had a comedy club built onto it called Sir Laugh-A-Lot. Mm-hmm. And so they had headliner, what they call headline and then feature act. So the feature act does 30 minutes and the headliner does an hour. Sure. So they would bring in a headliner and a feature every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every week. Well, they needed an MC, so I and they had an open mic on Thursdays. So I went and did the open mic, and after my first time, the guy who was the MC was like, "Hey, I'm getting ready to leave town for the summer, but I think you could do this. Do you want to host?" Which made a lot of the other open micers angry. <laughs> of course, yeah. Here's this new guy coming in, right? But so I hosted that. Um, and then uh, my father passed away uh, when I was 20, and, and so that, just right in the middle of that, and that was pretty devastating at that time, mm. and I just didn't really feel like trying to be funny, you know? Of so uh, I kind of took a break, and then that club went away, and there's not really, well, there is a comedy scene here with some open mics that happen, but there's not a comedy club here. Oh, there is, my friend. Oh, okay. Yeah, billiards. Downtown. Oh, the Blue Room. The Blue Room. Sure, sure. They have a national act every weekend. Okay. Yeah. So that's fair. Um, and I, just... I have, it's if I may interject, uh, I have several friends in the comedy scene here. Oh, okay. Um, it's funny to me, I've noticed this on the national scale all the way down to the local scale. doesn't matter which type of artist you are. Mm-hmm visual, comedic, music, musical, uh, we all kind of run together. Sure. You know, and I think that that, I think the reason we do that are sources of inspiration. You know, somebody kills a comedy bit, that makes me want to get better at music. Right. I see somebody's awesome artwork, Mm -hmm. I relate that to how well I can create, you know. Uh, And so I hang out with people who are creative and artistic. Right. Um, most often because they're open-minded and I can have genuine discussion with uh, that individual. Right. They're, they're not closed off to any one thing, you know. Sure. Um, and so it's I, I love hanging out with comedians just uh, <laughs> mostly because they're just, their sense of art is so bizarre. <laughs> they they have to analyze real world scenarios, yeah, and then present a story that is engaging. Mm-hmm. And you talk about thir- a thirty minute or an hour long set. To me, that seems terrifying. Just mm. you and a microphone. Yeah, which to be clear, I never did a set that long. I I was the the MC, so I was sure wasn't two minutes in between whatever. Yeah, it was yeah. like it was like I think fifteen minutes maybe was my Total, opening set. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, like I would open and then bring the feature up and then bring the headliner up. Sure. Um, that to me, uh, I'm by no means a visual artist. Yeah, I can barely draw a, a stick figure. Sure. Yeah, me same. Uh, <laughs> And with comedy, I feel the same. Now, I think that I can be punny at times, and I think that I can have observational comedy in the moment, sure. you know? But to be able to redirect that into a bit mm-hmm. seems very deliberate to me. That that seems like you have to have a certain neurological pathway that's, like, can take... I've, I've always heard the claim that comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah. And so these people can take certain instances 
Like they they watched a five year old fall at a skating rink, and right. they can take that and stretch that into a three minute bit. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Or whatever it may be, that is a style or a, a form of art that I find very difficult to tap into. And as a songwriter, it's not very different. Ultimately, you're mm-hmm. still expressing some sort of imagery. Right. But it's it's different in the sense that uh, what I'm after is. Um, to make a statement, uh, and I, and I don't know if comedians are that. Comedians are almost like a big question mark. And... Yeah, I think that. I mean, I think with comedy, it's. Um, I, I think one of the the larger challenges of it is that, and I certainly don't mean to act like I know what it takes to write a song or something. So don't take it that way. This don't take this that way. But like you can you can write music and you can do that in your room by yourself, sure. right? Because yes. you can hear it and and certainly you don't know how people are going to receive it, but yeah. yeah, you can still identify like oh this is a good song or whatever. But with comedy, the whole thing is hinged on a live response, of course. So you have to work out material. That is live. actually something that uh, music shares, though. Oh okay. Uh, I I love this quote and I forget who it's by. But I used it today teaching. And it's, art is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. And comedy is no different. Once, this, once the speech is over, um, it's gone, right? right? It's in the moment. You can't sit and observe in real time a comedic act. Like you can a, a, a picture. Which, by the way, this is awesome. Yeah, a close friend of mine gave me that. It's a what we're looking at is a painting. That's actually Trinity. A, a, a from Trinity for the Matrix, Matrix right? Yeah. But but yeah, that's that's the only painting I own. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, she just showed up at work one day and was like, "Hey, I saw this. This artist paints different yeah. figures from pop culture." And it's, uh, oil, and I, it's, it's very nice. Yeah, the Matrix is probably my favorite trilogy of movies of all time. You know, they're so. making another one. I didn't know that, and I don't know how well I like to hear that, but... <laughs> well, let me put it this way. In my opinion, there's only one Matrix movie, and Ooh. it's the first one. Ooh. Okay? Ooh, I disagree, but go on. It's go not on. like Lord of the Rings, where I think uh, The Two Towers is the best. Like, the, the, sure. the middle one is the best. See, I actually know? do think that the second Matrix is the best. Um, once you get past... Like, once you get to the scene where they go see the Frenchman... Yes. It is literally nonstop action from that point forward. Which ties into a lot of people are speculating that John Wick is in the Matrix. Oh, that'd be cool. The, yeah. It's just the, actually Neo. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I love those movies too. Of course. I do as well. And uh, it would be interesting if they did tie that in yeah. somehow. And yeah. I'm not sure if the Coen brothers wrote John Wick. I'd have to look into that. If they, if they wrote and directed... I'd, or if it's somebody else, because they did the Matrix, right? The uh, no, that's the Wachowski. Wachowskis, siblings. that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And I don't yeah. believe they're involved with John Wick. John Wick is also is also, I believe, a graphic novel, oh. which is where the more fantastical elements kind of, of like it a come Punisher, from. like a, a, a yeah, but like where like where he has the hotel where there's these like alliances and there's like sure. the currency and like yeah. none of that actually makes sense in the real world. You know what I mean? So it's not. To, like to John Wick read. isn't like Taken, where Taken is like a very literal, trying to be real movie. Sure. There's not really any fantastical element other than Liam Neeson's probably not really that tough. But but John Wick has all these again kind of fantastical elements that are not kind of like um, 
Oh man, I think it. I think it's. I don't. I get these two confused all the time. But there was like like lucky number seven. Lucky number seven. And then yeah. there was one other, like ace something. I don't know. They came out at a similar time, but they kind of also have these like fantastical elements that are a little beyond reality. What I about guess, which uh, I like. The Kingsman. That's another one. That's yeah, that was of, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That I, was excellent. I've never, I haven't seen the second. I haven't one. either. The first one though, I, I liked a lot. It was tremendous. Yeah. It, it had a, the plot was really well driven in my opinion. The action was great. That final fight scene in the church is just yeah. phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal, man. Uh, but I, I, you know, you expressed just a moment ago that there are certain aspects of John Wick that seem fictitious. Sure. Uh, I agree with that, but I also think that there are coalitions that happen like that. Sure. Not that there's not organizations or something. I just simply mean like the, uh, yeah, j- just the, the, the massive scale of the organization that he sure. participates in. Yeah. And it's like James Bond. Yeah. Like, it's just a little, a little beyond reality. Sure. But, but either way, which um, I think is what people are drawn to for that, sure, is the 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 fight sequencing and how everyone's guns have unlimited ammo, and you know what I'm saying, like, <laughs> right? It's, right. It's very intense to sit there and right. wonder if he's going to make it. And on the third John Wick movie, uh, I was for certain that he was just going to die. Oh, okay. Have you seen it? I have seen. I've seen the first, I think, half of it. I was watching it on some pirate stream. And yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> then yeah. it got janky, and <laughs> so I had to shut it off. But I love the first two, and in the third one, he is hurt all like pretty early Correct. in the movie. Yeah, so. yeah, he has to go to a doctor immediately. Yeah, and uh, once his time's up, the doctor can't work on him. Anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah, I got that far. Yeah, uh, uh, they make claims that they will make a fourth John Wick. Nice as well. So yeah. that'll be a cool installment. The Matrix. I, much like you, am excited and hesitant. Right. You know, um, just because I think ultimately the reason I say the first one is the one for me. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. <laughs> yes, there is no spoon. <laughs> um, uh, with the, was the period of time it came out. The, the CGI has not stood the test of time. Yeah. And so... Uh, the second and third ones used a lot more CGI with the mechs yep. and everything, and that pulled me away from mm. the like how immersive it was. Yeah, that to me was like a step back. And yeah, I, I like a lot of the stuff that I like about the Matrix is stuff that other people don't like. I mean, I love the action stuff, of course. You know, that's the sure, the number one the reason probably. Yeah. But like, like I love the what other people would say is like corny like Morpheus statements. Like when they yeah. go see the Merovingian, the Frenchman, and they leave, and Trinity's like, Well, that didn't seem like it worked out. And Morpheus says something to the effect of like, it happened exactly as it was supposed to. And yes. she's like, How do you know? And he's like, Because we're still alive. And it's like, you know, a lot of people think that that's like cheesy and whatever, but Oh, it's kind of profound. Like, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. Like I think it's Sure. So it all of that stuff about the Matrix movies I love, which is why I, I like all three of them. I used to not like the third one as well, but I've rewatched them several times. And and maybe I should uh, give it another shot here. It's been yeah. several years since yeah. I've seen them too. So. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, your opinion is, is the one I think shared by the majority. So Probably so, I, it's, yeah. It's, uh, I'm the, the odd man out on, on liking all of them. But. The, the other 
tie into John Wick being the Matrix. Mm. We'll, I'll close on this. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne plays an important role oh, in right. John Wick. In the third one, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the second one. He, he makes his appearance okay. in the second one as the, the, oh, the overlord of the homeless. The okay. homeless is this huge organization where they're not actually like impoverished. Mm. They make tons of money through the panhandling, and, and it's all sifted into one place mm. and redistributed. So everyone's taken care of. It's a persona thing. Mm-hmm. They own the persona. And so Lawrence Fishburne, you'll have to watch and finish the third one yeah. to, to fully grasp why people are now saying, oh, this could be in the same universe. Right. You know, That's which is cool. very cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So completely off topic of what we've been, well, not, it, it relates to what we've just been talking about, but it's not about your career. <laughs> but, um, did you ever see Baby Driver? No. The title, oh. the the title alone. Yeah. Disinterested me. Yeah. I, there was something that was off-putting I, about that title. As a, as a music person i that that you are i mean i cannot i cannot recommend that you see it enough i think that they had a trailer for that playing when i watched john wick three. Oh, okay and so i caught like the theatrical trailer four minute whatever mm-hmm. and i know that it is heavily influenced around him listening to music to keep him focused well the in... idea what it is is that when he was a baby his he got in a car accident and so he has the Tenonitis or whatever, where he uh, hears tinnitus, the tone. There yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. So he hears this really loud tone all the time. But if he listens to music, then that drowns that tone out. Mm. So that's why he's always listening to music. But the way it's shot and edited, it it goes along with the music. So like when that's the music cool. will kick in, like the scene changes and yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It it's remarkable. I am a so. I am a genuine fan of directing. Mm-hmm. Um, I admire. Directors like uh, Stanley Kubrick mm. uh, that can get these like the opening sequence of The Shining mm-hmm. is just stellar. Where it's this helicopter shot of this car driving down a road and it's so vast, mm. like being able to take this imagery and just blast it on a huge screen. Right to me, that is one of the coolest mediums. Yeah, one of the coolest art mediums you can have. Right is live motion picture you know that Mm -hmm. that to me is just so cool and uh i'm a big fan of obscurity as well i think that's what kind of gets me into the stanley kubrick kick Mm too the um clockwork orange it's based off a novel but still yet the i just i really appreciate the imagery and the way that that movie is portrayed Mm. you know it's uh, very fantastic um that uh uh, 2010, A Space Odyssey, or 2001, mm. 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm. yeah. Which, I think the only Kubrick movie I've ever seen is Apocalypse Now, Yeah, I think. which is great, too. It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I would highly... Re- You've never seen The Shining? No. Whoa! I've never seen an Indiana Jones movie. What? I've never seen The Goonies. Okay, now that one's a little more acceptable, but... Well, for my age, though, which I'm a little bit older than you, but... It was like, it's like a cult classic among kids my age, you know? Sure, so, yeah. So, but... So I'm judged by my peers I have a, seen it. I have a feeling <laughs> that uh, you didn't watch it because of that. No, I just, I just, I honestly just didn't know that it was a thing until I got into oh, high okay. school. Okay, Just yeah, hadn't yeah. encountered it. Uh, I didn't watch the Star Wars movies until, like, I didn't, I was never exposed to them as a kid, and so instead... And not because, I mean, I watched Terminator when I was five. So it's not because I lived like a sheltered sure, childhood. Sure. 
I don't know, for whatever reason, I just never came across them. Yeah. yeah. And so I actually watched, I watched the Star Wars movies in order, in like the episode order. So I watched the, the yeah. Phantom Menace, and then, or well, I don't know, I watched one, two, and three, the ones where Anakin's, Darth Vader's a kid. The, yeah, the prequel. Yeah. yeah, and then watched four, the, five, and six, which are the original. Correct. Uh, and I've only seen episode seven of the new ones. Um but honestly, like, you know, with the, and it's, it's part of the reason I haven't made it a point to go back and watch Indiana Jones, which I get, I haven't seen it. So how dare I speak on it? But, <laughs> um, what I found with Star Wars is that like, it's not that they're bad, but it's also, I think that people don't acknowledge their rose colored nostalgia glasses enough with them where it's like, if you saw it when you're a kid, of course it was crazy. And of course you you love it. I mean, I can watch movies that I watched as a kid now that I don't think I would like if I hadn't sure. seen them as a kid, you sure. know? Yeah. Um, yeah, perception is an ever-changing thing. Right. So, yeah, you may watch a movie when you're 13 and it have a tremendous impact on you. Mm -hmm. And then you watch it when you're 30 and all of a sudden it's like, I, this comedy doesn't sync up with me anymore. Or, right. Or, you know, the story isn't as prolific as I once thought. Right. Um... See, when I was young, I think everyone does this to a certain extent. They've got a movie that they would just repeat. Sure. You know, like, I remember going home after middle school every day and throwing on Kung Pao Into the Fist, the oh, Steve okay. Odenkirk movie. Yeah. Which Steve and Bob Odenkirk both are just incredible actors and comedians yeah. in their own right. Right. But I got to, like, I've, I've watched that movie well over a hundred times. Oh, wow, okay. You know, have you ever seen Kung Pao Enter the Fist? I have not, but I'm familiar vaguely with what it is. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, a spoof it's a dub, martial arts essentially. movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. They just green screen Steve Odenkirk into this 1970s oh. Japanese martial arts movie. Got ya. So it's an old movie, and they do English dub, so when they talk... Everything is very like <laughs> right. out of place, right. you know, Doesn't with sink. your faces, yeah, which adds to the comedic effect, sure. you know. And um, I, I just there are certain things about that. If I went back and watched it now, it's been at least a decade since I've seen Kung Pao. Right. I'd go back and think, man, that's just dumb. Like, well, like for example, so I watched uh, as a kid. I used to watch a lot um, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, sure. which is a Mel Brooks movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I liked that a lot. And I watched I, that just under a year ago. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, recently, you know. I mean, I've seen it prior, but right, I right. rewatched. I should say. I think I could rewatch that and I would still like it because I think that the nostalgia would pull me through it. Mm -hmm. But then, like, when I was in my mid-20s, I watched Spaceballs, which is another Mel Brooks movie. Man, we ain't found shit. <laughs> right. For the very first time. And and it didn't, it didn't really resonate that much with me. Now, probably also because... I haven't, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, so a lot of the jokes don't, I mean, I get it, I get sure. who Darth Vader is, and yeah, yeah. you don't have to see Star Wars to understand the combing the desert joke and yes, stuff like that, sure. but it just didn't really resonate with me, but it, I didn't think it was terrible as much as I just thought, I think if I would have seen this when I was younger, or when it was new, or whatever, it would, it would resonate with me more even later, but, sure, because I didn't, didn't really click with me. Well, a lot of that Mel Brooks humor is, uh... Like middle brow, I wouldn't call it low brow necessarily, sure. but it's definitely not a high brow comedy, you know. <laughs> right. um, so, but I think that gav, I think that captures the largest audience. Sure, you know, um, because it's not like it's bland. 
No. Necessarily. There, there are definitely elements to a lot of the, uh, the Mel Brooks films, um, that are, that are fantastic. Why can't I think of, uh... Well, well, there's also, um... Blazing Saddles is probably one of yeah, the most famous ones. Sure, which now with today's mentality, <laughs> um, the millennial mentality, that movie is borderline offensive. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that from a lot of. I haven't actually seen it, but I've I've heard that from a lot of people that, like, yeah, especially in today's culture, it's like that could never be made right. and succeed. Like, right. <laughs> yes, the dialogue is just <laughs> very specific. Right. right? <laughs> and, 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 yeah, you can't get away with things like that now. Yeah. And, and with the internet, if you're a budding director or producer right. and you put something through like that, it could ruin your career. Sure. And that's... That is a shame, too. I hate that people are overly sensitive now. Yeah. Um, I, it... think that, I think that empathy and being able to observe something from somebody's point of view is important. Okay? I think that people should be respected for their viewpoint. Mm -hmm. To a degree. Right? Uh, it's kind of the give an inch, take a mile scenario. Yes. You know? Where it's, if we let... If we back off here, we're going to lose all this other uh, fodder, mm -hmm. right? And it's not always bad. It's it's just yeah. a lot of it is out of context, right? Mm -hmm. Like like memes are big a popular thing these days, right? So they'll take a situation that's contextually right, mm -hmm. but whenever you read it out of context, it's like, whoa, that's right, you know distasteful or whatever. you are but there's there's a, a a big protest going on in hong kong for some time yeah, now sure yeah and so just recently there's been two big media flashpoints with it in american pop culture where one is that blizzard the video game company yeah they have a, a game called hearthstone uh that's like a card game kind of like magic but anyway and they had a player who won the tournament who's from hong kong and he made some statement in support of the people of hong kong well, Blizzard uh, took away his prize money from winning the tournament and banned him from the game for a year, right? So everyone flipped out that that's so wrong, and, and there was this whole, you know, of course, trending on Twitter, hashtag cancel your Blizzard account stuff, or and sure. I don't know what the hashtag was, but something like that. I wonder how much that affected them. Not, not very much, I, I think. Would, I would assume you're right. Yeah. yeah, not very much. Well, and so then the NBA, same thing. The NBA goes and plays preseason games in China every year. Sure, sure. So a general manager for the Houston Rockets tweeted, I think it was literally something to the effect of just like, 
I stand with freedom and the people of Hong Kong. Something like that. And that is, uh, from the Chinese perspective, that's a, a contradiction. Sure. Freedom and the Republic don't go well together. <laughs> okay. Right. And so, but so what happens then is China immediately flips out and shuts off the broadcasting in China of all the preseason games. That's what NBA I heard. Games. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so anyway, there's all this outrage currently about the, the, the fact that this guy was lambasted, and then like LeBron James came out and criticized the general manager, didn't criticize China. So now everyone hates LeBron mm-hmm. for that, right? Mm-hmm. Or there's and, and then to to be clear, I also agree that China is this totalitarian regime government that is terrifying and yeah, the ultimate helicopter mom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I want to observe everything you're doing. And I also times. agree, actually, that it is not correct to prioritize money exclusively over human rights, over being human, over freedom, right? So so I, I actually agree with those sentiments. However, it bothers me so much the outrage culture that we have where people are spending hours and hours tweeting about Blizzard or tweeting about the NBA or or organizing protests. I mean, people are Blizzard canceled an event they were going to hold in New York at a Nintendo store where they were going, they were launching Hearthstone, I think, actually, or I don't know, some game, on, or I think it was Overwatch, on the Nintendo Switch. They canceled it because there were going to be so many protesters there. And, and it, again, it's not that I don't think that that situation deserves attention or that the people of Hong Kong should be abandoned. I, I, I get all of it. But it's also like, well, what are you guys, what is this Twitter mob? Like, what are you doing to help poor people in your own community. Like, what are you doing to actually make the world better? Because tweeting isn't moving the needle. Deleting your free Blizzard account that you made to play your free Hearthstone game isn't moving the needle. Correct. And so it's, like, outrage culture... And I feel betrayed by outrage culture because I'd say it's been really prevalent for the last eight years. And for the first several years... I was totally like, yeah, because I don't like bullying. I hate bullying so much, and I hate bigotry. Sure. Whether it's racism or or homophobia Mm -hmm. or gender discrimination, whatever it is, I don't like it. And so I was like very much on the side of people who were saying, hey, this stuff's going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, yeah, F those people, you know? Of course. You're right. You shouldn't take that, and we shouldn't stand for that as a society. However, that pendulum has swung so far the other way that again people act like they took the mile over the inch yes yes and so so i say all this just to say because it's a it's it's frankly an intimidating topic to talk about on the podcast because if if you don't agree with everything that the outraged twitter mob wants Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you're like an alt-right trump supporter person which i couldn't be farther from you know what i mean like (laughs) yes but like and so while I don't support anything about that dude or anything about that way of thinking, I also, you know, I also just think that there's been a, a huge. Over- Have you seen the latest Dave Chappelle stand-up special? I've heard it's great. It's great because he's he's offensive, literally for the sake of being offensive, just to be like, this look, is, yeah. like it's all fine. Like yeah. I can say it, and it's fine. And he and for him, he's like. And you can't cancel me because I don't I don't work on ads. I have a Netflix deal. Right. I already got paid. Right. So turn me off. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't yes. get me. 
and it's and I I love it. Like it's so it's my favorite special that he's ever done. That's a brilliant platform for him to take. Yes. To, at a time such as this. Yes. Because that you were talking about moving the needle. That is a real world instance where he's moving the needle. Right. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, he may lose supporters, but he may also gain people who say, "You're right. Not everything has to be." Take a fucking joke. Yes, yes. <laughs> Especially if the person's on stage with a mic. It's one thing to be out in public with and a somebody. Horn. Yeah, yeah. Well, or even at a coffee shop and somebody just spits something they think's wise and it's actually offensive. Right. I, I mean, actually, I, I'll share a story that, and I, I certainly won't name names or anything, but I have a buddy who owns some rental properties and he just had one go vacant and, uh, and he's half black mm. and he had repainted it. And then someone broke open the lockbox while he was gone, got into the house, and wrote, painted over his freshly painted walls, curse words and racial slurs. Wow. Right? In 2019. I mean, literally it happened today. He texted it to me today, right? Yes. And, it, and so my point, is, and the reason I bring that up is that I'm in no way trying to trivialize the reality that... It does exist where there are fucked up people and there are horrible monster type people out there, but but like that's a real incident. You know what I mean? Like that's a real thing. Here's but, something to add to that. Yeah. In the era of Trump, these the bigots, the racists, the xenophobes, homophobes, all of these people with this current presidency feel like they have a platform. And they're beating their chest harder than ever. Mm -hmm. In 2015, Donald Trump said something very important, and I think that he's made it factual. Okay, And I'm not a supporter of this guy whatsoever. Yeah. But he said, when I get elected, I will drain the swamp. Yeah. The political swamp, he has done nothing but hinder. But the public swamp, he has turned a light on all of these cockroaches. He's flipped rocks yeah. and brought people out of their hiding and... With him being able to say, I could stand on fifth uh, and shoot someone and no one would care. You get these people with uh, racist or uh, bigot style characteristics that say, oh yeah, now I can beat my chest and be loud about how mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. um, and that has a public impact. These people are being shunned both in person and on the internet. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you how many times a day, if I'm on YouTube or something and I read through the comments. Oh, never do that. You, YouTube oh, I, comments are the, I love the worst of the worst. I love it. I love it. It goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in my opinion, it goes Facebook, YouTube, Reddit. Like Reddit comments are well, the best. You, oh, uh, like but, the, but Reddit actually can have some substance to it. I mean, arguably the experience of Reddit is in the comments. You're right. Whereas yeah. YouTube, like, man, it's just the worst stuff that people say to each other on that. Like, <laughs> And that, that adds to my point of these people are being loud right now. Yeah. And they're being blacklisted for it, too. Right. You know, this the, the days are over of the acceptance of ignorance, bigotry, hatred. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, it, it well, and, you know, and the thing about about it all that that makes it so complicated is that I actually am, am very close to to family and some very close friends that that did vote for Donald Trump, and they are not 
they don't check any of the boxes that we're talking about. So it's isn't that interesting? It is because it, it's are not, they religious? No, uh-huh. it's it's not as if they, that's what I mean. They don't check any of the boxes that the 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 stereotype does, and I think that that's I think that's a, a part of the other problem that we deal with now in the culture that that we're in, at least in America, is no one wants to look at nuance because it's hard and it takes time and it takes thought and it takes effort. But time is probably the biggest constraint. And so it's much easier if you can just be binary with things and just go, oh, you voted for Trump, you're a bigot. Oh, you voted for Obama, you're a bleeding heart liberal that never wants anything to, no one to be accountable for anything. And it's like, no, neither of those are actually true. And the problem with the blacklisting, so I used to think that, like, I, I for my whole life, I've been this guy that's like, you know, if you said the N-word in my presence, like, I'm not going to fight you or something, but we're never talking again. You know what I mean? Right. Like, we're, we're not cool. Like, I, that's I'm, it. Yes, I'm in the same boat. And, and not that I now give that a pass or something, but what I've had to come to understand is that, like, if you just blacklist people or you just try and push them out, then they just all get in a room together and now that's their now there's just a community of them and so you're still not actually solving the problem in fact that's actually why i think that base that you're talking about that trump has exists as prevalently as it does because they were all pushed out and they were all marginalized and they were all told no this isn't acceptable this doesn't align with our values and there wasn't a dialogue there wasn't a conversation it was just a no you have to leave and it's like, well, but we're not going to kill them, so they right. don't actually leave. And if there's enough people, then now they have their own community. And now, you know, Fox See, News exists. 15% of the population, I would say, is in that category, the, the Donald Trump supporters, mm-hmm. right? The 300 million people in the United States, I would say that 150,000 of them are, are probably that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um but just because they're small in numbers doesn't mean they aren't loud. They're so loud. Yeah, I think that the loudness, the noise, is actually a big... Uh, just a, uh, the, Because that's the thing, is that like the, the outrage culture that we were talking about before is really more uh, aligned or at least associated in the media with the left, right? With anti-Trump sentiment, right? Sure. And I think that it's actually... So, it, again, it's not actually a problem of, of people who voted or, or who like Trump, and it's not actually a problem of people who don't. It's actually just everyone's problem is that the noise right now is what people are paying attention to, and it, it it's actually all illegitimate. It all It's all bullshit. Like, the noise doesn't actually mean anything. It's like, for example, I have, I have a lot of friends that really hate microtransactions in video games. Mm, sure. Like they really hate it has put a it has put a stain on gaming, right. in my opinion. And and there's this vocal like I was at this I was at this video game developer conference uh a, a, I don't know, a month or so ago and one of the guys that was there was like, I can't believe that companies keep coming out with loot boxes because mm. people are so mad about them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Yeah, but that's actually wrong because you're right, if you go on Reddit Everyone's mad about loot boxes. But if you look at Activision Blizzard's financial statements, 70% of their billions and billions of dollars of income annually is from digital transactions, yes. microtransactions. Yes. So it, as loud as people want to be, again, it's not moving the needle. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's not that That's not actually what matters. See, I think that with the microtransaction deal, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I was telling you before the podcast started, I play Call of Duty Mobile, mm-hmm. right? They have a, a coin system, a microtransaction coin system, mm-hmm. and everything is ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. I'm talking, you know, you can get 4,000 coins for 50 bucks. Right. Okay? 4,000 coins gets you one gun skin. Right. <laughs> okay? And here you get the same game on console mm-hmm. or a, the new Call of Duty that comes out. It's 60 bucks, and you get a lot more in the whole, in the encompass thing. Okay? Now, where I think microtransactions are good that game that I play is free. Right. You just have to download it. Right. And then, yes, the microtransactions make up for the development. I guess my point is just that, like, I, like cause I personally agree with all of those sentiments, uh, and I personally am not a huge fan of microtransactions, but if people don't like them, then they shouldn't buy them. Yeah, vote And someone yeah. is buying them, which right. is, like, the, re- the way that they would stop putting them in games is if they didn't make any money off of it. Yeah. Then they wouldn't spend time developing it. Well, but... see, that the the outrage for that started with DLC. Right. When, when developers started realizing, oh, we could put out 60% of the game mm-hmm. and then make them buy 40% more. Right. You know, and... That, to me, is... uh, That's scandalous. Yeah. Uh, Because you think of games back... Like, I'm talking original Nintendo through Mm -hmm. the Nintendo 64. Mm -hmm. Those games were not long. They were difficult. Mm -hmm. And now we have games that are incredibly long, not super difficult. Right. You have games like Dark Souls, obviously. Games that are difficult. But... It's more of a, hey, you've completed this, now purchase this on right. top of it, you know? Right. Oh, here's Fallout 76, which bombed, but here's right. Fallout 76, here's all this DLC. If you want to really enjoy this game, you're going to have to pay double. Right. You know? Yeah, I think that, I, I, I don't know, I actually, um, I actually am somewhat sympathetic with the game developers on that, because I, I think that the truth is that game development for NES games was significantly, by orders of several magnitude, cheaper than developing a game for a PlayStation 4 is. I, You know what? If we looked at the sale price of consoles, the Nintendo NES was actually right around the same price as a modern-day console. That's exactly my point, is that, that games back then were 50 bucks, and now they're 60 right? Sure, sure. But the cost of developing and making them has only increased exponentially. But the market won't bear them selling games for $100 for a game. Like, consumers wouldn't do it. You're right. So they have to find a way to monetize because that's why businesses actually exist, is to feed people, right? (laughs) To to get money or whatever. Not to be clear, I don't think businesses exist to feed people in a charity way. <laughs> right. I didn't mean that. No, it's eat or I just, eat. Yeah, <laughs> I just simply mean like it's to it's to make money. And so they had to find a way to make to make the money because they can't increase I mean when the PlayStation three came out, it was five or six hundred dollars and people were upset about it. You know what I mean? Sure. Like I would be surprised if we see another console at that high of a price point, even now, twenty years later, fifteen <sighs> years later. You say that but 
people build machines that are $1,500. People build PCs all the time that are exponentially sure. more. And the PlayStation's approach to the PS3 was an all-in-one media right. housed unit. Right. So that's why it was cost so much, because now you can browse the internet and you can stream videos. Right. And, you know, they were trying to make it more like a computer. But I guess my point is that even with all of those capacities or whatever, all those functions, it's still only... $600. To your point, the gaming PC that does all the same stuff is over a grand, yes, right? Yes, yes. So, again, they're not actually capturing the revenue that they need from selling games and selling machines, mm. so they have to find new ways to do that, mm. which is these digital transactions. Yes. And I like when games allow you to opt into them, so I, I like it when games have ways, and you know, some games make it a huge grind, but I like it when there's a way... To still earn it in the game without having to pay money, so that way you can choose. Of course. Um, but you're right, the grind is long. Somebody, yeah, sometimes somebody, it's... Somebody can spend $20 and get access to all this, and it's going to take you 100 hours. Right. You know. Which then comes down to, it actually, what you actually end up measuring is time. Because if you have no money, then perhaps you have more time, right? Perhaps. And if you have, and, and again, not exclusively... And if you have no time, maybe maybe you have more money. So sure. now you can make that trade. And again, I don't mean that as ubiquitous. Anyone who's busy is always I think wealthy that, or something. I think the way that a lot of people look at that, if it's going to take you even 80 hours to, to get through all of this, if they've got a job, like part-time, 10 bucks an hour, something, and, yeah. and it costs them $20, they look at that and say, that's two hours of work. Or 80 hours of work. Yeah. You know? So they opt into the microtransaction because, boom, it's done. Right. And then you go to work and half your day's gone at a part-time job and you've already paid for it. Right. It's done deal, you know? Right. So I understand that we live in a very convenient time. Right. You know, now, where everything, any type of knowledge you want can be accessible. Mm-hmm. Fiction or non. <laughs> you know? Sure. You can... You can find a narrative for everything that you will agree with, yep. whether it's right or wrong. Yep. And that is an issue. We've, we've come to this fake news situation where <laughs> uh, yeah. people, even when it's cited with resource, right. uh, people will still claim that that is an inaccurate assessment. And that's kind of my, that ties back into what I was talking about earlier, where it's like, that's why the answer can't be to blacklist or to exclude only, because what that does is it creates that exact scenario you're talking about, yes. where, well, I've been excluded, so I'm not going to believe anything that comes from them, because sure. I was shunned, or sure. or whatever the case, you know, not just that they're hurt or something, but just, for whatever reason, when those divisions happen, it it makes it so that people are willing to get into those kinds of camps. Yes. Where, I mean, as it stands today, you have, you know, look look at Fox News as an example. People who like Fox News like it and think that it is genuine, or generally, I should say, accurate and, and reporting things. Not now that Shep's gone. Yeah. Now that Shep's gone, it's going to be a shit show, man. Right, yeah, yeah. Now it'll go off the rails. <laughs> but we'll then see there, even there with that joke that I made, then you have people like myself and, and many other people who don't like it and and I don't think that almost anything credible comes from it, you know. Sure. And, and I'm this isn't trying to be a, in defense of Fox News as much as just to say that like you get these polarizing things where 
people aren't willing to even discuss it or try and reason it out. They've already made up their mind, and that it is what it is. Of course. And uh, and I think that's what leads to so much of the, the noisy chaos that we see. I don't believe that we, as a global conscious, will ever be able to get rid of duality. Duality is a hard-pressed thing. And yeah. so you're always going to have a scale with... Light and dark. You can. Sure. That's a yeah. Right fill in left. the blank. Fill in the blank. Right. Yeah. Red and blue. And everyone falls inside of this. So you're gonna have extremes on both ends, right. and then taper in toward the middle. You mm-hmm. know, politically, I would say that I am. I'm in the middle of a lot of things, mm-hmm. I, and I don't want to get into a, a lengthy topic about that. <laughs> but I think that there are general ways that we, as a country, could come together and make changes that would benefit the mass. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of reform. Yeah. It takes a lot of time and effort, like you were mentioning earlier, you know. Yep. And unfortunately, there's no $20 microtransaction to help us through this. You know? <laughs> there's no DLC for, <laughs> yeah. for political reform. Yeah, that's, a, yeah. That's, that's true. No Bernie side quests on this adventure. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, just to, to kind of put a, you know, a, a, a closing to all of that, if you will, I, I, it, it's just so, it's, it's very, very, it's actually very complicated and people want it to be simple because if it's simple, you don't have to think about it anymore. But the truth is, is that not everyone that doesn't like Donald Trump is some, lives in Seattle, right? Love you people in Seattle. I don't think anyone from Seattle listens. But if they did, I you know, I think I would probably like to live there. Anyway, but not everyone who likes Trump or who voted for Trump checks all these boxes of being a bad person either. There's a lot of really earnest, genuine people that 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 honestly, and, and, and it's a point that I don't think is discussed enough, that we're not satisfied with the political reality that ex- has existed for a long time. Sure, the two-party and system. And rightfully so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... And so to them, what's happening now is kind of what's always been happening with the veneer stripped off. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think the only way that we, we bridge this is to have dialogue and is to talk and is to not... Well, and to make a point about what you said about the simplicity of things. Yeah. The less you think, the less you can think. Right. So whenever people get into these loops... They put themselves in a box, and then all of a sudden it's a smaller box. And then before they know it, their world is so condensed that they're afraid. Yes. That ignorance turns into fear. Right. And that fear turns into hate, eventually. And and we are at that point with a lot of people right now who are too afraid to think past their proverbial bounds, if you will. Right. You know, they're... They've got a bubble and it's expanded to a certain point and they're afraid if they expand it anymore, it's going to pop. Well, and that's, and that, yeah. And you see that again, you see it across the board because you see that with the, again, the more leftist aligned outrage culture as well, where it's like, just because someone said something that, that you don't think is appropriate doesn't mean they're a monster. The leftists pop their bubbles all the time. Right. (laughs) They're just itching to, itching to do it. And I have a lot of friends Honestly, on both sides, mm-hmm. you, you know, um, and like you had said, you have family members who in this Trump era decided to go with that. Right. Where they don't characteristically fit that persona. The stereotype. Sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
and you can have good discussions with people about about topics. You know, I've mm-hmm. had plenty of discussions with libertarians about taxes and and how to better analyze that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, all this loud shouting about socialism. These people that they lack foresight because if they had it, they would realize the transit, the schools, fire. Uh, police. Right, we already live in a mixed. Again, it's nuanced. That's and that's exactly it is right. Nuance. Yes, but but there's people, already a scale of gray that we're operating. Correct, in. but they were born into that world, right? So they don't observe it that way. Right. This is the way things are. The lights turn green, yellow, red. Right. Okay. They don't care who the fuck put them there. Right. At the end of the day, you know, but they should. They should care because it's them. They're right. the ones that paid for it. Right. They're the ones that control what happens. Yeah. And if the general populace could ever pull together in a conscious mindset and say, we need reform and we know that our money is the direct uh, line to mm-hmm. that. We would see change. Yeah. But you're right. The, the nuance that we have just discussed gets flipped to the nuance of political adversary. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to... Uh, hate on somebody, you know. Yeah. My my father is very liberal in his approach, you know. And back he lives back in my hometown and uh he is a like a blue dot in a red sea. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He 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 feels blacklisted because everyone there has Trump bumper stickers and MAGA hats and right. you know, it's a whole it's it's honestly absurd. Yeah. Uh, but uh He'll have debates on Facebook daily. Ugh. He'll post some sort of meme, anti-Trump or whatever. Right. And these Trumpers kind of crawl out from under, <laughs> crawl out from under the rock, and they're like, "But we have things to say." And it's yeah. like, "Yeah, but you're not reading what you're saying." Yeah. You're 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 putting all this down, and then you're hitting sand, and you're never looking at it again. And that's the real issue: is that they're not actually considering. The overall approach. They they right. say a lot of it gets pushed back onto other people. You know, if if you make a claim at Trump that he's done something wrong, they say, well, yeah, this person. Or, yeah, but this person. Mm-hmm. You know, and what about this string of events? And it's like, okay, yes, you're, you're not wrong. The shady shit has happened for ever. Ever, presumably. And, uh... It's hard to get around that, but whenever you catch someone in the act, uh, quid pro quo, mm-hmm. that is, you can't defend that anymore. Right. You know, and Trump's main card is to lean into all this stuff. Yeah. If he knows that if he gets caught, just lean into it. Yeah. He, he's larger than life, you know, and, but I think had this have been Jeb Bush. I think he would have been kicked out immediately. I I don't think he would have the same stay power that Donald Trump has. Right. Yeah, I would agree that Trump has definitely um, benefited by his capacity to be a celebrity. You're right, because that's how people perceive him. He's not a presidential figure. He's an idol to some regard. Yeah, but I think it also reflects, uh, unfortunately, as as hard as it is to to accept sometimes, it, it also reflects the American population's sentiment. I mean, people... Well, it's no different than Brexit. 
Well, but that, my, my, this was an outcry. This said, "We're tired of this political right. nonsense, so we're going to go as far out of the box as we can." Right. Well, and I guess what I mean though is also like you know you have people that will spend a whole day watching the royal wedding in England, right? <laughs> sure. And and they're not from there; they're here, here in the states. Right. Right. And it's like. The truth is, is that Americans are obsessed with celebrities. So the fact that a celebrity is now the president actually just kind of fits with what our culture demands. I mean, because... that's true. This is <laughs> this is the era of Honey Boo Boo. Right. You know, where things right. are just so watered down culturally that, yeah, we, we have become, in a group conscious sense, like, more intelligent with the advent of the internet, mm -hmm. but more forgiving with ignorance, and that—that that is a, a weird combination. Yeah, like it's a yeah. weird time to be alive, you know. Well, to, so to go back to your music, sure. um, you so you you're you're now full time teaching and performing. Correct. Yeah. Um, if anyone wanted to, you know, check out your music, do you have any albums or anything at this point? Uh, yeah. I'm so currently I'm working on building a small studio. I had cool. recorded some music in the past, and when this ends, I could show you some of it. Sure. You know, uh, just home studio stuff, much like you have a setup here. You right. Know? And, um, <laughs> And I do, I've got about 15 original songs right now that I've written over the course of four or five years. You know, it's just kind of all happened. And um, I would like to get some of this recorded, some of this down. Um, I tried building a couple bands in Springfield. That has been a... It's, that has been a difficult thing to do. Yeah. And the reason for that is everyone has already created projects. Everyone's already in things, and mm -hmm. they're willing to take on more. Mm -hmm. But after your third project, how are you going right. to commit time to certain things? Right. You know? Yeah. And so being a multi-instrumentalist, I would like to take the Dave Grohl approach to the first Foo Fighters album. Mm. Dave Grohl recorded everything himself. Oh, okay. Which is what I did with these recordings that I have. Oh, okay. You know, I have a drum set. I had to Murphy my bed. I had to flip my bed up every day to set my drum set up. Oh, nice. So I could mic it and record it, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? And, and I got some really nice sounds out of it. Um, my Like, every instrument's a work in progress, right? And I'll get to online outlets in a minute, but... Um, so the, vo the voice has been the most difficult instrument for me to uh, curate. Mm -hmm. And it's that's funny because it's the one you've always got with you. Sure. You know. Um, 
And you've got an excellent radio voice. You yeah. know, it's just how I talk. I, I, know, I know. This is just how I talk. And they're two totally different worlds. You know? uh, and so I've had a little bit of um, like a mental block because of that. Because I, I enjoy songwriting and painting pictures. But I always listen back to myself. I mean, I've got 900 audio recordings on my phone of mm-hmm. me singing random, sh- random shit. You yeah. Because um, I'll sing it and then I'll listen back to it. Right. And I'd, I'm constantly making tiny adjustments to how I think I want to sound. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, I do have a Facebook page. Okay, cool. If, if, if your audience would like to delve in. Yeah, so um, I have, you know, at the whenever I publish the episode, um, there's a show notes section where there's I can put links and stuff. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can, I mean, you're welcome to say it. What is, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just... Uh, I, I believe my YouTube and my Facebook are the same, and it's uh, respectively facebook.com slash tavish.lawson. Okay. And then I think my YouTube is the same handle. Okay. Just youtube.com slash tavish.lawson. Awesome. Um, and I've got just very scattered things on both of those you know sure. ideas like or a live video of just like playing some jam tracks or whatever you know right um just to pass the time i am more interested now or i should say gaining interest all the time in building a group you know mm-hmm. um i would like to do something like uh alan holdsworth i don't know if you're familiar with he does a very progressive rock, jazz-infused sound. Okay. Okay. So you know how like Rush is very progressive rock, and they've got just much like Tool, they have odd time signatures and things sound bizarre, but it always comes together. Mm-hmm. I would like to have a group similar to that, mm-hmm. and maybe not even have vocals, just make it be an yeah. instrumental thing. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite bands is a. a prog rock metal group called Polyphia Mm. and Polyphia is just I think that they're four people I think it's two guitars a drummer and a bass yeah there's a group called Pelican that's similar okay yeah and then another group called Russian Circles that's kind of in that same cool if you're into that there's a group that's uh their name's Chon C-H-O-N they're from Austin Texas and they do a lot of this stuff but in a much less edgy approach sure yeah and um, so I, w- I wouldn't mind even just having a space to just invite people over and just like create sound, you know, like right. I try to stress to students quite often that music is meant to be shared both to an observer and for other performers. Mm. You know, if you have this idea, I, I often relate music and the ability to play as a sandbox. Okay, so whenever I teach people, they already have the sandbox, the guitar or the drums. They can make sandcastles with their hands, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I can give them buckets and shovels to do it with, that makes their castles that much nicer, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it gives them just a, a framework to work with, mm-hmm. you know. They say, well, if I just scoop this up and plop, plop it down, I've got to aspire. Right. Or whatever it may be, right. you know. Um, and so... I would really like to utilize that sandbox with other musicians of my caliber or higher caliber. Right, right. 
Um, one of the only ways you get better, I think, at anything is by joining in with people whom are more experienced to begin with. Sure, yeah. And uh, so to have a space where I could bring in some kind of like local legends, local musical legends, you mm-hmm. know, the, like three quarters of the Ozark uh, uh, Mountain Daredevils live in Springfield. Right. You know, and uh, and I've been fortunate to become friends with several of them. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I actually went to a house party. This would have been four years ago. I went to a house party in uh, Randall Chowning, which is one of the founding members of. He doesn't play with them anymore, but he was one of the like the the first generation of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. It's funny how groups can gain and lose members. That's a whole nother. Well, it becomes to- a brand topic. eventually. Which well, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, but we were at this house party. And he played us like a 90 minute set of, mm-hmm. of you know, um, everything from if you want to get to heaven to chicken train, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it was interesting to talk with him because like I said, this was four years ago and I still believe that the Springfield music scene is growing Yeah, um, all the time. If you guys, anybody listening out there, there are several Facebook pages that list weekly shows Mm -hmm. and i think right now like the the median number for shows per weekend is probably 27 28 Mm -hmm. a weekend okay so there are plenty of live music acts to see of all different genres it's it just takes a little bit of delving and with the advent of the internet you are able to check these bands out before you go pay money to see them right you know right um yeah, and so, I I don't even remember what your initial question was. No, you're I, fine, I man. Tangent. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Um, we've been going for almost just under two hours, so okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's fair that you've been <laughs> exhausted from my talking. Um, but yeah, man, I you know, and and I I don't mean this in a, a, a to try and be flattering or or in a, certainly not in a patronizing way at all. Um, but I, I really genuinely mean that I, I think that that what you're doing uh, is incredibly inspirational. And I'm, mm. I'm really grateful that you came to share your story and share what you're doing. Um, because, like, when I met you and you told me that you were you were going to be quitting at Lucky's so you could go to, to just full-time teaching and doing gigs, like, a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't ever see that as a possibility that they could you're right not work their day job to do something that they're passionate about right you're right and and a lot of the time it's because there's a lot of uncertainty with that and sure. so and that's why I said I'm not trying to, to flatter you but it's honestly it's very brave of you to 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 go out on your own like that and and, and try and, and make your own way there, and uh, yeah I think it's awesome there is no greater sense of accomplishment I've had than working with somebody and finally seeing the light bulb come on for them. Yeah. You know, if you work a concept for three or four weeks a month, they they keep coming every week, 30 minutes a week, and they go home and they practice and they come back. At the end of that month, you finally say something the right way that they go, oh, right, this makes sense. Right. And then they start applying it. That, yeah. to me, is such a gratifying thing that... Uh, it's almost like a drug. It's very addicting. Yeah. To whenever you get people to the point, or even I've had several people come in as beginners 
and transition into intermediate players. Right. You know, and and that is a that's a big step for people. With I've been there just under two years, a year and eight months or so. Uh, so. And uh, but I've had to build my client base. Right. You know, and so it's taken me eighteen months to get. 36 clients right i may have hit 60 at this point total with people coming in and going sure oh this isn't for me or oh i just don't have the time i told somebody today uh nobody has the time we have to make the time right that's the difference you know at the end of the day nobody has time to spare see that's again there's another line from the matrix it's so great at the end of the third one yeah when Smith and, and Neo fight and Smith is beating him over and over and he says, why, why, why do you continue? And he says, because I choose to. Yes. It's all choice. It is a know? choice at the end of the day. <laughs> You're right, man. And, and so, uh, I played a lot of live music on a lot of stages in front of thousands of people. And I, I get no better sense of satisfaction and gratitude than, Here's a case in point. Okay. I have a student. She's 17. She's been playing the guitar for a couple of years. She came to me just wanting to get better in general, but mostly like lead guitar. She Mm -hmm. wants to learn how to play lead guitar. Okay. So she's been coming to me for like probably four months, four or five months now. Uh, And a couple weeks back, we were talking about lead guitar and I showed her, we call them like box shapes on the on the fretboard which means you have this pattern you can do anywhere on the neck mm-hmm. right? it's the it's static the mm-hmm. pattern never changes it's just the tonality of it changes sure so i showed her i showed her this certain perception of how to apply it and i said okay now i want you just to play these notes uh in order and i'll just play some chords kind of just uh, pad it and we'll go from there and we got started, and about 20 seconds go by, and I look over at her, and she's, like, looking down at her the, the neck of her guitar, and she has this big smile on her face because she's realizing every note she can play utilizing this technique sounds nice. Right. And to her, that was like, oh, my God, I'm doing it. Right. Like, I'm actually doing this. Yeah. And whenever I... Because I have to observe my students as they play to correct any kind of bad habit or right. to make the ease of motion better. Mm-hmm. But whenever I looked over and I saw her grinning from ear to ear, that just lit me up on the inside. I right. was like, man, that's so great. Because I remember being at that stage of my playing, right? Where it's, everything's real unstable, but then you finally catch on to something and it's, it's invigorating. It's mm-hmm. like, oh my God. Yes. This is what I've been looking for. You mm-hmm. know? And as, as a an artist who's been in the field for a long time, that happens not less frequently, but to a lesser extreme. Right? Mm. You you still have these breakthroughs, but they're not as monumental. Sure, sure. Yes, and so I often forget what that feeling is like, but now I get to live it through them vicariously. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, I get to see them progress and think. I remember when I was there. Right. You know. Right. And, and that is uh, also a tremendously awesome feeling. Well, they say that, um, you know, that, that making it, whatever that means, you know, takes some luck. Uh, and there's also a saying that luck is when <clears throat> preparation meets opportunity. Absolutely. And, uh, and I, you know, from 
the little that I know about you, but everything that you've shared, uh, it seems like you have, have been preparing for a very long time. And so I hope that your opportunity comes soon enough because thank you. you yes. uh, I, I really hope you make it, man. Yeah, thank I, it's you. super awesome what you're doing. I, um, I, I believe that everyone has like a, a certain purpose. You know, some people think that pulling people out of a burning building is their purpose. Right. You know, um, I think that for me, above anything else, is to be a catalyst for inspiration. If somebody runs into me, I want to be as authentically me as I can be. Yeah. But also show them that the the grind is worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I have to reiterate to my students over and over, there will be days that you do not want to do this. Yeah. There will be. But if you do it, it's, it, you know, I like our mutual friend that yeah. acquainted us. Yeah. There are, she is, she is a fanatic of fitness. Yep. Right. There are days she says she does not want to condition her body. Right. She would rather just veg, but she knows that after she's done, she's going to feel 10 times better. Yep. You know, and, and being in a physical art, like dance or a, a visual painting, you yeah. know, uh, music, they're tedious. They're they're energy consuming. Yeah. But when you get done and you feel you've made progress, yeah, it is a very rewarding thing. And yeah. that's what I try to get people bugged in on, because if if I can let them catch that bug of excitement to learn, yeah, then I've got them. And and from that point, they're just very malleable, like a clay. They're malleable. Right. And then I can cultivate that and say okay now we're we have to lean more toward not understanding this as ba -da 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 -da, but understanding it as light to dark and which tones do you use and there's a whole color palette in front of you right? yeah and chords are chords are paragraphs and whenever you want to play over those you are saying words right and your words have to match the characteristic and it is a language absolutely yeah. and uh, and I'm still learning all the time. I do not. Right. I haven't. I make no claim <laughs> that I know everything. Sure. If you want to know, if you want to talk to somebody that knows virtually everything, go to Jacob Collier or, or uh, his um, predecessor uh, Herbie Hancock. The way that these guys can express music verbally mm -hmm. is just mind blowing. Hmm. I, I I constantly watch videos on YouTube of these guys talking about music. Because they're not saying an A triad is composed of these tones. No, they say, okay, this scale Lydian is much brighter than this scale Locrian. And so we can use them in the same scenario, but they're going to give different texture. Yeah. And that's, music is about feeling. And when you're working with texture, that's a, that's a very big deal. You get so much more emotional context out of, utilizing uh, theory yeah and uh while it's important to know the composition of an a major triad uh <laughs> that is not the end goal right the end goal is to be able to express yourself in a very fluent manner right you know right this is sad so i need to play blue notes right this is kind of soulful and bluesy maybe this is like a royal purple or something you know like hmm. i have a condition air quotes, condition, uh, <laughs> called synesthesia. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with synesthesia, but mm -mm. it's 
it can happen in various ways, but it's where two of your senses um, are cross-wired. Okay. So some people can smell colors. Like, I know okay. that sounds crazy, but the blue on the inside of this, when they look at that, they can get a sensation of, like, some sort of smell. Okay. Mine is my audi auditory and visual are combined. So whenever I hear things, my mind's eye sees all these wicked colors. You know, whenever you shut your eyes, you can see these, like, blobs sure. of color. It's very similar to that, but with my eyes open. Hmm. Right? And so... Um, when I'm performing, if anyone of your listeners catches me in the wild, um, <laughs> I sing with my eyes closed a lot. Mm. Because when I do, my synesthesia connects better and my colors coordinate. And I can tell I'm in pitch or um, moving well based on the colors that I'm seeing. Hmm. Yes, it's it's hard to explain without being able to experience it. Right. Um but I'm learning more all the time that synesthesia is not a super uncommon thing. Hmm. With the cross-threading of like, you know, you may uh, see something and your mouth waters, you taste it already. You know what I'm... That's a form of synesthesia. That's where your eyes and your taste are communicating with one another. Gotcha. Right? Or, yeah, you hear me say the word coffee and you can taste that. That right. can be claimed as synesthesia because your ears are using their input to give you that sensation right hmm. um mine just happens to be visual and audible yeah well that's yeah that's really interesting I, I i wasn't familiar with that um but yeah that's 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 super cool to hear it to hear music kind of described in that way sure well and see here's something that's cool that 17 year old artist that i was telling you about my student who cracked the big smile playing lead. That was a couple of weeks back that she did that, and today I had her. And we were listening to, you can go on YouTube, any of you guitar players that are interested in doing lead guitar, go onto YouTube and look up guitar jam tracks. And there are there's a plethora of songs that are just chords that you can play over. You know, So I like to use these in my teaching so that we can both play lead. Instead of me having to play chords and then stop to show them something mm -hmm. but i we were playing some sort of rock funk thing today and i was seeing these purples and dark blues while we were listening to this and, mm -hmm. and so i got to talking about color and brightness and darkness with her and i the song was playing in the background and i said which color do you imagine when you see this or mm -hmm. when you hear this and she was like purple and I knew in that moment, I was like, okay, we're going to be able to transition into this new perspective of music. Mm, mm -hmm. Because that is the tonality color that I was seeing, too. Cool. Purples and blues. And so her saying that immediately, right. she didn't even really think about it. It was right. like, what colors do you see? Purple. Great. Okay, cool. Because huh. that's, that's what I'm seeing, too. Right. You know. And so then from there, I said... Look at these. I've got a whiteboard that I draw everything on. I said, okay, now we want to selectively target the tones that use that color. Mm. You know, But purple is two colors, right? Red and blue put together. Sure. So you can use that spectrum and selectively choose tones outside of that primary color. You know, mm. And I know that this sounds wild, but I attribute visual art to music very often. Mm. You know, this 
has a sound to it. You know that, uh, and for the audi- audience listening, the the Matrix painting we were talking about <laughs> has a sound to it. Right. You know, not that I could define that for you. Sure. Um, but much as music has a visual thing, you know, you listen to Neil Young singing about mountains. And you can envision what he's seeing, Mm -hmm. North Carolina and these really awesome landscapes, you know, because he's being very descriptive about it. Right. Um, And, yeah, music's powerful. And one more statement would be, uh, I think that you had mentioned earlier that it takes bravery to do this. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is something I was actually thinking about last night. Um, so it's it's kind of funny that it's all rounded out to this, but opportunities present themselves um, when sometimes when you least expect it. Obviously, you can seek out opportunity, mm-hmm. um, but while I agree with you, it takes bravery to do this. So many doors along the way have led me to be confident. Sure. You know? So sure. So that's playing, mu- opening up for uh, Randy Hauser, a popular country artist, and playing in front of 3,000 people. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. being able to do these things that I have met with anxiety or fear. You know? Oh, my God. Like, this is about to happen. And yeah. then I do it. And that makes me stronger every time. So now quitting Lucky's and doing this, do I have reservations about it? Absolutely. We're in a Trump presidency. This maniac could drive us into a recession. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's on the chopping block? Luxury things. Teaching music is a luxury. Right. Okay. People seek that out, not because it will provide food for them right you know but because it provides some so i had one guy tell me this is the cheapest form of therapy i can get (laughs) (laughs) you know and i thought about that for a long time and this guy was in his like late 30s like 38 to 40 maybe Mm -hmm. and i thought about that after he said it and i was like i think a lot of my adult students feel that way Mm -hmm. i think because i'm personable I, i whenever they come in we learn obviously but there's there's I get to know everyone mm-hmm. because again, I do have a, like a psychological mindset. I, I, I like getting to know people and not, not in a malicious way, right? but I, I like getting to know people and their past or their experiences or what they're into because that is all uh, redirected in toward the music they can put out, mm-hmm. you know? What's a what's a, a memorable instance you've had? Oh, it was this one time I was 10 and I was sledding down this hill and it was the most amazing hill ever, you know? Being able to take that feeling that they get when they remember that and reproduce it in a musical sense. That's great, but it takes some psychological delving to actually get them to that point. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I've got a... There are some people that are just clams, man. They get in there, and I have to pry them open every week. Right. You know? And I had one student. He's 16. I said had. He still comes, and he plays drums. And uh, he was talking about taking lessons, and that he wasn't coming just for the drum lesson itself. 
he's a very timid individual, um, not outlandish in any way. Mm -hmm. And I am very much an extrovert, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm very much, a, I'm going to pull you out of that shell type sure. person. And he's expressed to me in his own words, uh, that he comes to me for that. He's mm. wanting to learn how to better do what I, what I do mm -hmm. as an individual, mm -hmm. you know. And that was profound to me coming from a 16-year-old. Sure. You know, but I, here I am, 28. I'm kind of like on that, I'm kind of on the, the edge of trendy. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Where I'm, 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 I'm looking at the back door of the trend house right, right. now, you know. I exited it a while ago. <laughs> so. Sure. So you understand my path, right? Sure. Everyone's path. and. And so I have a lot of students in their teens that look at me and they think, oh, yeah, like that's like he gets it. He's hip, you know, mm -hmm. in 10 more years, I'm not going to be that person anymore. You know, sure. I'll be old school and that's totally <laughs> fine. I welcome that. You know? um, but for right now, I'm trying to utilize that to the best I can. And yeah. that, that allows me to better connect with my younger students. Yeah. Even the kids. Like the five to ten years old or twelve years old, uh, you have to speak to them in a certain way, right? You know, a to gain the respect, because it's it's difficult to gain a like a, a kid's respect, you know. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're just gonna trample all over you, right? Every chance they get, you know. So you have to earn their respect, um, and you have to be witty enough and just clever in general to keep them on their toes, you right? Know? Uh, and all in all, I have no regret for leaving Lucky's well, to, no. to pursue. Of course not. Know. No. And here I've done the math. Uh, live music is a supplemental income thing for me right now. It mm -hmm. is not a primary source of income. Right. It makes up about a third of my total uh, income. You sure. Know, teaching is two thirds of it. Over probably closer to seventy percent, honestly. And. But what I'm finding is with every time I gig out live, I learn and I expand my horizons of what that actually means. And uh, I think that I could make that a full-time endeavor with regional traveling. Right. I think that uh, the coupling of, like you said, luck is um, capability met with opportunity, mm -hmm. right? That's uh, right now I have worked very diligently for the last several years on my capability because I've known that, excuse me, for a couple of years now. And right. it's that if an opportunity ever presents itself to me, I need to be ready. Right. Because I would hate to have to kick myself in the ass after bombing something. Right. You know, an opportunity or, you know, like... I've had several friends in the past work on cruise ships, and that's something that I've considered doing as well, you know, going and you'd be gone for like three to six weeks at a time. You get to see all these really exotic places and meet interesting people, mm -hmm. you know, and but that takes a 300 song catalog. You've oh. got you have to have a catalog, playable catalog of 300 songs, wow. you know, yeah, pop, rock, country, alt, all of that stuff. Right. The top 300, essentially, right. you know. And that's a lot of music to cram into your head, you know. It you is. think 50 songs is about three and a half or four hours, you know, so you multiply that by six, you know, you've got to learn 25 hours of music right. before you're able to do something like that. So preparation is everything. Right. You know. Right. 
Well, uh, if people, if people, you know, hopefully people will catch you live around around here, uh, and then I'm sure in time you'll have music out, you know, yes. an album or something. And, Absolutely. And, and when I get that out, I'll come back and we'll do another one. Yeah, man, for sure. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for, for coming by today and, and, and talking with me. Uh, again, a fascinating and, and I think very inspiring story. And I'm really, really happy to share it, man. So thanks a lot. Yeah, Walker. Absolutely. That is going to do it for today's show. Thank you again, Tavish, for stopping by. It was a blast recording with you. Can't wait to do it again. And, yeah, if you guys are out and about in the Springfield area, then be sure to be on the lookout for Tavish. Uh, he's very talented and has a good time. And if you want some music lessons, I'm sure you can hit him up at Springfield Music, uh, although supply may be limited because, as we heard, his time is already stretched pretty thin. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Stay up. Stay up.